You're listening to the Fearless Futures podcast, where we unpack and interrogate mainstream methods, as well as alternative approaches we have developed and deployed for equity and inclusion, working in daring companies across sectors around the world. Each week, we will explore a new angle you won't want to miss. So stick around. Hello, hello, everyone. I am so excited for this episode. Again, I say that every time and every time I'm being honest because each episode brings a different flavor, um, a different energy, obviously a different topic and a different guest. So I think I'm really excited for this one because although throughout the season, for season two thus far, you know, different guests that we've had have touched on their individual experience and reflections in this work at different moments throughout the episode. But like knowing that we get to focus on the work of inner reflection for this episode with Hassan Kaya is just exciting for me because it's not something that I think we spend a lot of time on. So again, I am your host, Sable Lomax. Pronouns are she and her. I am your host for season two of the Fearless Futures podcast. If you haven't listened to season one, hosted by our CEO and founder, Hannah Naima Makowski. But we are going to dive in again. The work of Inner Reflection with Hassan Kaya. How are you today? How's it going? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute honor uh, to be here. I'm a big fan of Fearless Futures. I'm a big fan of what you are doing in the world. So this is an, an incredible privilege. So we are going to jump in. I'm going to read your bio. I don't know how you feel about your bio being read. But once I read it, I said, I can't shorten this. I need I need the folks to hear what what you've done, what you work on, and what you've accomplished. Hassan's pronouns are he and him. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Mavericks Unlimited, an executive coaching and leadership development company that specializes in supporting scale-up companies and high-growth creative businesses. He partners founders and CEOs and their top teams to create strong performance cultures and help them achieve their business objectives through one-to-one executive coaching, creating and delivering bespoke leadership development programs and more. His work centers around helping people to engage their strengths, embrace their values, and lean into their possibilities, and believes that we all have the capacity to lead fulfilling, authentic, and empowering lives, and it is his mission to help others to excitedly be their very best self in the world. Hassan is also a strategic HR consultant, non-executive director, advisor to thriving startups and charities, and co-host of 150. 15 miles podcast Hassan do you sleep <laughs> very very little I also have three kids and, and and a dog downstairs as well so uh you know when you do what you love um it really is easy I think um you know it may be a bit um cliche to say but I genuinely love what I do I feel a lot of energy and I do get a good six hours sleep a night sometimes oh, that's, six is not bad you know there are yeah. Folks out here at three and four or five, 
You know, yeah. I wish I could get you to seven somehow. So you do executive coaching. I'm now turning into executive sleep specialist <laughs> here. Yeah. Obviously, I have questions for you, but there are two questions, one at the beginning and one at the end that I've asked of every guest that have joined. Um, so we're going to start there and then we will officially dive into all things the work of inner reflection. I imagine, I just want to give you some context here, that you'll have several different things that come to mind once I pose this question to you. So if you had to think of, you know, a standout mic drop equity moment that you've had in your experience thus far, what would that moment be? The mic drop moment for me was was actually when I was on Design for Inclusion back in uh 2018 and design for inclusion being your fearless futures program. Didn't tell him to say that. Anytime a guest has said that, I just have to throw that in there. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no um, uh, bribery there. And uh, no, genuinely. And uh, let me explain why that is. I am uh, a man of Bangladeshi heritage. Um, grew up in a Muslim household, single parent family. My my father passed away when I was ten months old. Um, we didn't have a lot of money growing up uh, when I was growing up. So. If I walked into that um, experience thinking if there is a line of privilege and underprivilege, I'm definitely on the on the side of underprivilege. I really felt that walking in and almost maybe a slight badge of honor in that, you know, like having struggled through all of that to come through and do and achieve what I have achieved. But my mic drop moment was understanding that my biggest privilege in life is actually being a man. And really understanding that and, and the context behind that is that I, I, I have often thought about, you know, my sister's journey and my journey um, coming from the same background and the same, you know, um, home that we were raised in. And I just never really truly appreciated how much easier my life was because I was a man. So that was my mic drop moment, understanding that even with the struggles that we had, that actually I had this incredible privilege and I've benefited from it. And that was a really eye-opening moment into the, 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 the journey of, uh, of understanding around intersectionalism and actually not all things are equal and far from it, in fact. And that, that was where my real journey began. I love that you shared that because so often um, when we're talking with, you know, potential organizations that we're going to partner with, whether it's our training programs, our consultancy, and they'll say to us, like, we only want cisgender, middle class leadership, heterosexual white men, you know, not Muslim, not Jewish to attend this training because like everyone else, will, they get it. Like they're from one of these marginalized backgrounds, identities, ethnicities, communities. And, you know, steering people to go, yes, it might be absolutely accurate and possible that they have some lived experience with respect to their identity. However, that does not mean there's nothing for them to learn as it relates to all of the oppressions, how they overlap, how they intersect and where they might have privilege in one area, you know, that they might have not you know, just thought of actively because you're walking through the world like, 
I got this identity, this identity, this identity, woe is me. And woe is me is putting it lightly, um, but not sitting with, but what about the areas in which like I do have some privilege and what that affords me and grants me and benefits me. So I'm going to like clip that and find a way to use that. And some of these calls, like, okay, I have the perfect answer for you. (laughs) Insert on. So I love, I love that you shared that. So For those of us who come to this work, we come to this work for so many different reasons. Um, I think about like how you even began your last answers. Like I, you know, this was my background and look at what I overcame for me as well, wasn't a black woman at the age of two or, you know, 10 or whatever, but growing up with the identities that I hold, there was a great passion for this. This does not have to be this way. This should not be this way. And then as you mature and you have different experiences and you start meeting people from different backgrounds, it's like, wait, there are many of us struggling and our struggles are so similar that what would happen if we all came together to try to disrupt the inequities that exist? Um, Because, you know, the world should not be designed the way it's been designed. So like, I say all that to say, in in terms of the commitment that you obviously have to this work, what was it that brought you here? And then what is it that that keeps you going? It stems back to my corporate life. So before, you know, thank you for uh, reading out my my bio. Um, You know, before I was doing the work that I'm doing currently today, I was was a corporate HR director. I had the position of... um, uh, of being the person that was in, responsible for the people agenda. So I, I was in the best place position to do something about it. And I don't think I took up uh, the opportunity in the way I should have. You know, if I reflect back on um, uh, my time, I would go back and do it differently, knowing what I know now. And what I focused on at the time was just helping the business be a, a strong business. And so I probably just continued to um, drive the status quo on areas that needed disruption. What compounded my sort of view on that was my apathy towards an industry that spoke a lot but did very little. So in advertising, where I spent most of my career, there was a lot that you would see in industry magazines and industry awards and big agencies saying, hey, we do this and don't we do that? And here's our quota here or here's our you know, has our plan for this, but nothing really changed. And I felt a real apathy and I felt like, well, why bother? And in, and in doing the work that I do now for the last seven years, I've just made it a mission to, 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 to drive change through the work that I do, because, you know, it is my responsibility and it's the responsibility of my company to help the, the partners that we work with to have those, those, those conversations. And the thing that keeps me motivated, well, there's a personal and a professional professional is um, I want to use what I have, what I've been given, um, what I've worked hard to cultivate in terms of skills and strengths to drive uh, change in a positive way, but also to bring some empathy and compassion, which I take from my mum and my sister who both raised me and bring that into into the workplace. Um, But also I have three children and I want to leave this world in a better place than I received it. And so for them, and so there's a very personal mission that, and that keeps me energized. Thank you for that. And I love the honesty about, you know, had I known what I know now, I would have made different decisions. 
um, in the past, but not leaving it there to go, okay, well, I can't exactly go back and change some of those decisions or behave differently or do things differently. But going forward, I could commit to, you know, putting into practice what I would have liked to be able to, you know, just rewind, edit the film, hit play again, and like histories be written. It would be nice, could be awkward at times. So speaking about this notion of, um, you know, knowing what you know now and, you know, just reflecting on that in general. In May of 2020, you wrote a really honest public piece about failures, fumbles, and learnings as it related to, um, you know, I'm going to say the re-energizing public, international energizing, if you will, of the Black Lives Matter moment, uh, movement rather. What what called you to, one, make it public? It, it needed to be said and it needed to be heard. And, and because I, kn- I knew that there were a lot of people who... Um, were um, impacted by what happened to George Floyd, but 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 didn't know how to do something about it. And and part of what was going on for me personally was I didn't know how to do something about it in the in the first days, and I felt frustrated. But on top of that, what was really driving me, I was I was getting maddened at the hypocrisy that I was seeing big brands and and lots of virtue signaling going on. For me, I think there needed to be a bias towards action and there needed to be um, something that compelled change. And so part of it was just holding myself to account because if I put it out publicly, then I have to live by it. I can't not live by it. Well, some might not, but I appreciate the integrity of saying if I am going to do this thing, I need to stand by it. Yeah, completely. It was completely for me. I knew that once I put it out, then I had to do it. And so, you know, um, some of the commitments I made was to encourage the conversation amongst my network, challenge myself, challenge them, talk about it on my own podcast. We talk about some very difficult things and help have those conversations so that people um, can understand where they need to go on how, how they need to go. And we then also champion causes and um, opportunities for people to collaborate and do things differently. Um, so that's why I put it out there. But where it came from was I didn't know what to do with the energy that I was feeling. And writing has always been a place that of, of, of um, expression for me. But also I felt a calling. I mean, I am somebody who is has a, has a large network, I have a following, I work, I've you know, I have a privilege to work with some big companies and I felt a calling to do something. And that's where it came from. Just out of curiosity, once you publish, like you hit like share, publicly post, submit, you know, there's the buttons always say something slightly different. Did anyone reach out? I know there was feedback within the thread itself. Um, I've seen it and I've read it and all and all of that. But were there any, did it spark bilateral conversations with folks in your network that you weren't necessarily expecting, but you were happy to know that like, you basically said this door is open and you're invited to to walk through should you should you choose to. Yeah, I sure did. Um, you know, not only um, did I receive, you know, the, 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 the message on the thread, which you've seen, they were they were the public ones. I had a lot of uh, emails directly and messages d- directly. And I think for some people it was they didn't know how to articulate what was going on for them. And so they appreciated that. But also um I was invited in to help them have some conversations um, 
around what was going on within their organizations and how to navigate it. If I'm honest, some of it felt a bit like, well, I don't want to do the work myself. So let me let me go and speak to that guy who's just written. And we know that that's, that's part of the challenge, you know, in doing this work. But I was okay to, 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 you know, if it moves the dial, if it helps people have the conversation, then, then I'm happy to engage to a point. Um, but also what it did for me and for us and our company was enable us to um, walk more confidently into a space that I'd always, I'd left to people that I admire, like Fearless Futures um, or other organizations that are doing this incredible work. And, and part of it was, how could we ever contribute? And actually, we found a way to contribute that, it, that, that feels really authentic and we're really proud of in terms of the work that we're doing. Um, so yeah, you know, it opened the door and that's part, you know, that's maybe not explicitly, it was probably implicitly part of what I was doing when I was putting it into the public space was hoping to encourage more conversations like that. I appreciate what you shared about, you know, the the questioning of what do I have to contribute to this space? Because I think that comes up enough, um, or not enough, but a lot in terms of like, there's all these organizations doing this work. What do I have to bring to the table? And I always say, yeah, there might be thousands, you know, internationally that are doing this work. 3,000, I'm sure the number is quite high. If we actually, you know, put together a spreadsheet and have some real data here. Um, so let me just throw that in. I'm, this is off the top of my head here, but I'm going somewhere. Even still with all of the existing organizations doing this work, when we think about the like, impactful ways in which these systems, these inequities are just inextricably linked and embedded into every fabric of society. Hassan, we need all hands on deck in order in order to be able to disrupt and to dismantle and to create a world and workplaces and so forth that's actually is like more equitable and in a working towards justice. So for those wondering, it's like, what can I do? It's like, roll up your sleeves. Trust me, there's plenty, plenty to be done here. Um, Plenty to be done. Yeah. And then we'll take a nap. Like you take first phase, we nap, you take second phase. You know, we can, we can stagger this approach. (laughs) I think that's it. We're we're, we're all one global team and we just rest when, uh, when the other side's sleeping. Right. And that's, um, that's how we keep it going. There is just so much work to do. And I think it's understandable when people just don't know where to begin. Sometimes it's a bit like you're standing at the platform and there's a really fast moving train going past and you just don't know where to grab on, but you have to grab on if you want to go to where that train's going. And I think, um, you know, I read a book uh, maybe about a year ago called The Catalyst by Joan, uh, Jonah Berger. And um, it just talks about how to kind of shift people's behavior and, their, and change their minds. And I found it a fascinating book. But he was talking about people that are on sort of on one end or the other end of the spectrum. It's unlikely that you're going to change their opinions you know so to get a a a a fervently racist to be uh uh not racist is is going to be a very difficult journey one which i you know happy to try and undertake but it's the inert kind of population that is the biggest challenge it's the people that do nothing it's the people that just kind of go on about their business yeah and they don't even think that they're doing any harm it's just they're they're the ones where there's just greatest potential to 
to to to to to work with um but they're also the most dangerous because they do nothing so um it was a really powerful book he talks obviously about the um democrats and the republicans and he also talked about the remainers and uh, the brexiteers and and actually you know the biggest challenge isn't the enemy on the other side it's the people that sort of do nothing that are inert that don't move that's where there's an opportunity i think to you know win some hearts and minds yeah exactly yeah as i'm listening to you my brain is just going to like who are the folks that aren't actively engaging in disruption at the same time are unaware that they're actively complicit because they're not engaging in disruption and if you can get them over that line by way of education, awareness, understanding, and so forth, you could have this like critical mass effect, if you will, to be able to move the dial forward faster and have like that level of transformation that folks are 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 looking for and folks from these marginalized communities have been waiting for and working towards you know themselves for a really a really long time i appreciate you bringing that in so hassan you started us off you said that you are a man of muslim heritage you know you did not shy away from that you know man of color how does your experiences and connecting with you know the identities that you hold the oppression that you have experienced I'm sure still do experience with your work overall. Like how do, how do you connect that to, and when I think about, it could be your executive coaching or, you know, your HR consulting. How, how do you bring your experience, your expertise, your awareness of how these oppressions intersect into your work? My own lived experience, it took me becoming an adult to really understand that it was always there. I, I genuinely um, was conditioned and and therefore conditioned myself to think that I didn't suff- hadn't suffered racism, up, you know, or uh, uh, growing up throughout life. Um, but actually, it's really you start to see where those microaggressions really begin at an early age, and um, these sort of systems are in place. So, um, I think with enlightenment, personal enlightenment, and growth, I've really appreciated what 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 other people go through um, on a daily basis, as well as what I went through, and I really just want to make a uh, you know a, a different workplace um, through through my work. So our philosophy at Mavericks Unlimited, which is my company, is is that everybody has superpowers, and what we mean by that is we um, we encourage people to walk into the um, into their work, into um, their lives, into play through their strengths and the things that energize them. And we believe in positive psychology. And so that is our thing, if you like, in terms of the leadership work that we do. And it seems to resonate, you know, because, you know, we're successful and and we have great relationships and it's because we approach in this particular way. It doesn't mean that we don't ignore, you know, we ignore what what isn't working, but we just look at it through, through the lens of positivity. So that's sort of the first thing that I would say that we bring into our work. What that means in terms of um, the work that we do in in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, is that we uh, we use that um, positive psychology mentality to um, help organisations and individuals and leaders and teams look deeply within themselves and explore what needs to be changed, and explore what needs to be developed, and explore what needs to be left behind 
really quickly sometimes, and sometimes you can take a bit of a longer journey. And then we help them find the pathway towards doing that. So we help them to build a vision and then a roadmap towards driving change. Um, and um, I think all of it is influenced um, by the experiences that I've had walking through this earth so far and my business partners as well um, who have their own identities that they bring into the space and we don't shy away you know there's there's no mistaking we are who we are and we proudly celebrate it and we encourage everyone that we work with to do the same I love that last piece um, I mean not just the last piece but just highlighting the last piece really about you know we are who we are and not shying away from it and celebrating it I think that's really, really crucial. And with that, I want to lean into just this idea and reality about silence. Um, because I think that for, you know, many of us who are experiencing oppressions, whatever they may be, you know, it might be disabledism, it might be anti-Semitism, it might be racism, Islamophobia, like whatever, whatever the oppression may be, we often know and I want to highlight just bringing that piece you shared at the beginning of your response that you might not know it as a child, but often as you're maturing and reflecting and you're starting to connect the dots, you begin to understand acutely just the ways in which dominant social narratives can like silence our experiences. And when I think about, you know, how you brought the idea of like, uh, microaggressions into the space, how sometimes those microaggressions can be violent in furthering marginalization by way of silencing. Silencing might just sound like someone says, shh, but you know, silencing can be disappearing people, which we know is a thing. You know, silencing is often very punitive. It can take many different shapes and forms. Knowing that you're saying like, you know, we all have these superpowers and we're encouraging to bring that into the space. If you were to talk about, you know, how do you approach when talking with leaders? You're doing executive coaching here. So these are not junior managers, obviously, uh, or, or, or folks who are just starting off in their careers. When you know that they're dealing with different oppressions or an oppression, how do you encourage them to, to navigate the pressures that could come from outside sources with respect to, maybe we don't want to make a fuss about that because like this is the goal. And if we make that fuss, it could you know shift attention and then we don't get to get to the desired outcome. Like how do you navigate that reality that many folks wrestle with? We're lucky in a sense that the, 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 people that we work with, the companies we work with are really forward thinking. It, it, they may not be there today, but they want to be there. And and sometimes the journey is much steeper for them than uh, for others. Um, but we sort of, we made a decision that we only want to work with the companies we want to work with. And that is a, that is a, you know, a place of uh, privilege again for us. Um, in terms of uh, the role that we play, Again, we don't shy away from from the responsibility we have as coaches and partners. So we hold a mirror really, you know, close and and, and front on to to the organisations that we partner. And so at a leadership level, it is really reflecting back on them, um, you know, the 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 reality of their workplace. So some of the work that we do is based upon hearing from people within the organisation that wouldn't normally necessarily have feel comfortable to have the voice. So we hold focus groups 
uh, we give people voice and then we play it back to the organization and we don't sugarcoat it we don't make it we don't make it we don't soften the blow if, no we don't we don't we don't give it to them in a bow but what we do is we help them understand where it's coming from and then we importantly like what do you do with it like we, you know like we don't just say here's the problem um we 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 try and you know help them towards it but with leadership i talked about strengths we we really encourage leaders to to dial into empathy and compassion to really understand um what it might be like to experience um working in their organization or the work that they need to do and then um with compassion understand the experience create an environment that makes all of their people feel like they belong not just kind of the select few that have always gone and then the courage also to just like to to be okay to understand you know what their organization really is versus what they say it is in in you know on their website and there's often a real disparity and and a big journey for 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 some to go on and it's just um helping them to be okay with it is 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 a hard job and by the way i'm talking about you know a leadership team not everyone's going to be on the same page right not everyone oh, is uh, I mean, is that would, yeah. i would almost be scared if in the beginning everyone was on the same page right. like something's going on here yeah yeah well <laughs> this is this doesn't feel right and so you you will often have resistors you'll have blockers but then you have the the real change champions and the advocates and they're the ones we really lean into we i love uh Michelle Obama's quote when uh when they go low we go high um and you know i think for us you know just um using the energy of positive um change doesn't mean we ignore the other stuff it just means we lean into that energy first targeting your energy i think it speaks to what you were mentioning earlier it's like we have we have those on opposite ends of the spectrum and then we have those in the middle not to say that we can't work with those who might be showing us the most intense resistance um, that we've seen or have experienced in some time but when we think about, you know, how can we mobilize, I'm thinking about this train now, and, and keep this going and get more folks to hop on, you know, starting with your champions are folks who are like just on the cusp of becoming a champion is a very strategic place to, to target target your energy. When you're having these conversations with these leaders, Hassan, and they're, they're receiving it, they're not giving you resistance, they're like, yes. I believe this to be true. How do you get that that understanding to move from my one-on-one session with my coach to in practice with other leaders or just folks within the organization? How do you get them to to feel that energy with their coach, with you, to being willing and able and actively speaking up for themselves or others in those moments where it's like, oh, this is what Hassan was talking about. Here's here's an opportunity to speak up and to actually do it and put it into practice. Yeah. I mean, just to make a distinction in the work that we do, we do the one-to-one coaching um, where it does come up in those in those conversations. And, and for, for, for coaching, it's really about your client feeling um the courage and the conviction and the confidence to uh to to go out and do stuff so our role as coaches to 
is to kind of give them oxygen in the session and then hold them accountable, you know, which is to check back in. Did you do that thing that you said you were going to do or expect an email? How did it go? Those sorts of things. So what we tend to do at the end of a session is, is to say, okay, will you do this thing? Yes, no, counter offer. Um, if they say, yes, we're going to do this, then how will I know? Because Hass, I'll email you uh, next week once I've done it. So, so we, we hold a lot of account. In terms of the organizational work we do, so we are, we are org- as a whole, as a whole yeah. we are org design um, uh, consultants and specialists as well. We go in um, at the senior level, have the conversations with the senior team. Then we might work with, uh, you know, um, uh, a group within an organization or an agency council or a business, you know, a a task force or a team. And then we design uh, an experience um, that helps them sort of map uh, using kind of a design thinking approach, very similar to the experience that we had on Fearless Future, which is to use design thinking, really understand where we are today, where do we want to get to? And then we help them kind of plot a a roadmap, which is based usually around a a three-year journey. So the idea... um, is that what we want to do is we want uh, to help people to understand that, you know, years, decades, you know, centuries of oppression don't just get changed overnight just because, you know, some people say it should. Um, Some things need to change very quickly and you can influence those. I think that's really important. But then also understand that some things take a bit longer and you need to have a plan for those as well um, and not try and do everything at once because if you try and do all of them at once you know you might succeed in one but you know several of them won't get past where you need to get them to we help uh, companies organizations map out a journey um, but then really go down to a very granular level and because we do that we know uh, that there's a level of commitment um from those people and we also there's no guesswork afterwards once they leave this work they go out and start doing and then it's up to them to sort of you know continue the journey with us checking in on Hassan you don't know this but I started my career as a classroom teacher um so on this side of the pond it's ninth and 12th grade basically the first year the last year before you're off to uni those were that's the age group that I worked with so not that they liked to admit that they liked gold stars, but they, you know, the 14 year old and the 18 year old still appreciate a gold star. So I gave them, and I really want a gold star something you just said, because I think that there's often a misconception and misunderstanding of the work that it takes and the commitment that it takes to do this work well, but also sustainable. So I would really love to just tease out one bit in what you said. Like, obviously there are some things that need to change now. And when you're working with senior leadership, you have the power and the influence necessary to make those changes happen rather quickly. But then there are some things that take some time. How do you guide them in recognizing, I really wish I could, but I cannot undo colonialism in 30 minutes. Like, it's just not a thing. And if I could, I would, but it's just really not a thing. Um, To get them into a space of understanding 
oh, there are some place, there are some areas where I can do some things now, but then there are some areas where this is going to truly be a journey that takes some time. How do you guide them into like sitting in that truth and in that reality? Metaphors play a big part of our work. I mean, it's just a really nice way to be able to help um, people to visualize the challenge in front of them by, by looking at it from a different perspective. And um, we often talk about if you were at the bottom of Everest and your and your job was to get to the top of it, if you look straight up from the bottom of Everest, it would look like it's never ending because it's so high. It goes so high up that you wouldn't see an end in sight. However, you know there is an end. You know there is a summit. So once you know that there is a summit, there is work that you can do that gets you there incrementally. You're not going to scale Everest in one day. However, no. um, if you if you if you incrementally take yourself up that mountain and you're willing to do the work and you're willing to put the training in and you're willing to kind of take the uh, the impact, um, you will get there. So that's just a metaphor. There is no end to the work that we need to do here. Like it, it, there is literally no summit because it has to keep going. And then when you feel like you're done, you've got to keep going again. However, the, the metaphor of being able to break climbing Everest up into small steps. So, you know, you just exactly today, we just need to get 200 meters. Tomorrow, we just need to get to base camp, then Cape Mon, camp two, camp three, camp four. And that's it. It's like understanding that this is a big, big thing that we're taking on. But let's break that down into smallest parts. And then what we do is we we help an organization to really through the through listening to the people of its own organization and through um, doing some work around understanding um, the context in which it operates to then identify the, the things that have the biggest effect for that organization. What's the, what's the thing that could have the biggest bang for the buck, if you like, the biggest change, the biggest domino effect if we, if we tackle that. And so we help them to focus on priorities. So we take quite an organizational development and business focused approach to it. But actually what that does is it just helps people to really focus on the things that matter, do them first, do them well, then move on to the next one. Whereas I think too many organizations try and do it all. Yeah, that phased approach is a lot easier on the psyche than we're going to just go all in. And I think that's where burnout comes. And that's when change isn't sustainable. Or you have turnover potentially, because how does that work systematically? I really love this analogy because of course, I've watched a documentary about um, climbing all the mountains. I forget who it was. Um, um, it was a yeah, it was called there. 14 Peaks um, on yes. Netflix. That guy's amazing. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. He could he I could do like, Everest what? in a day. Yeah. We could do it. The rest of <laughs> yeah. us, we might, we <laughs> not, might so not want to try that. <laughs> Even before scaling that mountain, I'm really, really digging the analogy is there's some training that has to take place. There's some understanding. There's some foundation that has to be laid. There's some analysis. Like where where is the trouble points within the mountain to make sure we don't fall into those? Like where where are the peaks? Where are the valleys that we can use the experience of others' work, theoretical frameworks and such to go, wait, if we prepare for that now, I'm thinking if we use an intersectional lens, we can avoid a catastrophe, you know, when redesigning how we do project allocation or what have you. So I really like that approach because it kind of gets leaders, as we like to say at Fearless, to slow down just a little bit before, you know, trying to scale up yeah. at super speed. Yeah. And then ultimately crashing, and that's not that's not what we want. We don't want leaders to crash and burn. We want them to be successful. We want the workplaces to be 
to be more equitable. Talking about leaders, executive coaching, I said coaching, I don't know what that word is, but executive coaching, um, working with an organization using a traditional developmental approach. How do you, as an individual and in your work with Mavericks, how do you all approach the conversation of you're going to make mistakes doing this work? I mean, I think it's a really, it's a hu- it's a human-led approach, which is uh, that, being vulnerable. You know, um, mistakes will be made. It's what you do next that really matters. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I think Paolo Coelho, who wrote The Alchemist, um, once wrote... Yes. Um, uh, when you repeat a mistake, it's not a mistake anymore. It's a decision. So actually, if you make a mistake, but you don't do anything about it, you don't learn from it, you don't act on it, you don't take some action around it, then it's a decision. You're choosing to continue to behave in a particular way. So we have to help um, leaders understand that. Um, secondly, and this is a very personal point of view, and I'm, you know, and it may be in conflict with with other people's teachings, but I think it's okay to have an amnesty for a while, just for a while, to to have a bit of ignorance for a while as you're starting to dip your toe into the water of this work, because I think part of the fear and part of what people makes a lot of people retreat and stay out of the conversation is the fear of not knowing, is the fear of saying the wrong thing, and actually I think mm-hmm. being able to be in a safe space share that there's some ignorance, but being willing to go on the journey is really important. I don't want you to expect me to do the learning for you. I don't want to have to teach you everything, but I'm okay at our first interactions for you to say, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. How do I, you know, what's, uh, what's, what, how do I kind of deal with pronouns? And like, that's okay. You know, let's have that conversation. Um, so I think that's okay where the mistakes might come in the beginning, but if people continue to repeat those behaviors, those mistakes, then I think there's a challenge that that needs to be kind of had with those individuals or those teams uh, about how serious they are to do this work, how committed they are. And then if they're not, then it's about, you know, having a more direct conversation about, you know, what to do next. Because for some people, they really do want to do the work, they just keep tripping over themselves. But even tripping over yourselves for too long means you're not going deep enough. You're not doing the work. You know, you're just being not racist versus anti-racist, you know, and I think there are well, still well-meaning not racists. Um, um, and you just got to go a lot deeper and you've, and it takes work. It's interesting that you say that. So we obviously live in a society that's just like quick to punish and to punish and reprimand publicly, you know, with, strength and energy behind behind the punishment and then so that's just like a truth and then you have for those of us who um are minoritized then punishment can even feel more visceral you know the level of punishment might feel more um or be more extensive because there's less room to make mistakes, you know, given the way society has been designed. If you are black or a black woman or a Muslim man, you know, there's a, just a different level of expectation and requirement and um, permissibility to make mistakes, if you will. With that being said, and how you just answered like the last question, in your opinion, in the work that, you know, you all do from the one-on-one coaching to I'm working with the whole org, we're going to get, you know, we're getting you up this mountain, if you will. What conditions 
would you say are required from an organizational standpoint to set the tone for mistakes are going to be made, but if you continue to make that same mistake, it's now a decision and I'm just going to end it there. Like what conditions need to be required, need to be set. So it's like, you can make a mistake. However, there's some investigating that might not be the right word because of HR. There's some unpacking and conversations that will need to be had if we notice that the same mistake is being made and thus change is not happening. Yeah. That's like a two part. Yeah. Okay. Um, One of the philosophies or one of the one of the pillars of, of the coach training that I've had is everybody's naturally creative, resourceful and whole. And so um, it is it is definitely within everyone's capability to, to, to change. Our job isn't, isn't the police or guardianship of, of um, policies and procedures in organizations. What we do is we hold people to account to be different. So we might do that at an individual level, or we might do that at a collective level. And so we use our interactions, our moments with, the, with them, which are just moments in time. We're not there every day, but though we use those moments in time really uh, as powerfully, uh, powerfully as we can um, to drive them towards the change that needs to happen and to listen to the uh, listen to the experiences of people within their organization and the people that have left their organization or the people that won't join their organization too, all really, really important pieces of data. In terms of um, sort of individual leaders, it's about um, helping them to understand, particularly if they are leaders who aren't um, um, suffering the same level of impression as some of the other leaders, or they are benefiting from privilege, is to uh, is to really park their own views, what they've heard, to uh, to minimise. Say one, you know, they might think, "Hey, we're really um, we're really inclusive," but actually, if one person doesn't feel it, you can't just invalidate that person's experience because actually, you have a you know a strong belief. You have to take a very a bespoke approach to every um, every um, situation, however um, time consuming that might be, but that change needs to come because you really have to understand that these experiences are real. You know, feeling is fact, and you got to deal with that fact. So I think it's whenever we have those moments where you know we're not always invited in to those conversations, but when we are, that's how we would drive the change. Absolutely. With this work, um, it can get lonely. It can get exhausting. Um, I feel like anyone in this work is inherently hopeful because if you weren't hopeful that things could be different and things could change and people could change and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, why on earth would you do this work in the first place? I think every day has the ability to be daunting. But, you know, to circumvent that, community is so, so important you know, and in a community where folks have shared values, shared understanding, they don't necessarily have to have shared identities, but definitely shared values and understanding. How do you ensure that you are continuously surrounding yourself in community that, you know, pushes you, but also you can, you know, just have a glass of wine or water or, you know, com- decompress with um, to, to keep you committed to the why that you shared earlier? Like, wh- how do you, how have you found yourself making space for that or carving out time for that? What has that looked like for you? Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that has really, uh, I enjoy in life is meeting new people and having conversations like this, you know, and feeling like your friends the minute you meet each other is sort of something that I take a lot of enjoyment from. 
Um, so I sort of just do that naturally. I'm curious and I just, you know, I go and seek out people and or people seek me out and we just connect. Or you mentioned that I'm, I host a podcast. So um, my co-host is um, a white cisgendered male called Josh, but we have some really, really um, powerful conversations on our podcast. And that really helps us to explore this, this work, um, both from a place of uh, lack of understanding and trying to find our way together um, to just appreciating each other's experiences. And he does a lot of work in the, in the space of mental health, um, childhood trauma, um, poverty. And so we are really able to, um, to, to explore with each other. Mavericks Unlimited, me and Krish, um, we have a, an incredible honor to partner a, an organization called Power the Fight in the UK. Um, oh yeah, uh, okay. which is I don't know every UK org, yeah. but this one I know. Yeah, th I mean, you know, um, uh, started by CEO Ben Lindsay's great friend um, of ours. We get to do some work and partner with them. We spend a lot of time with the team, and the work that Power the Fight does is to um, is to empower uh, communities to end youth violence, and they do work incredible work, both at a sort of a high level policy level, you know, working with governments and and and, and big organisations, through to um, working with communities and bringing things like therapeutic intervention to families who have um, suffered a loss as a result of um, some some violence, um, and so through that work, I get to really stay connected, and then. And then my family, you know, my mum still lives in uh, where she, where I grew up and my sister and they keep me grounded. So, um, yeah, I have lots of sources where I get inspiration and I get inspired and I feel very lucky that I have all these wonderful people around me. Thank you for sharing that. I am proud of myself, Hassan, because I don't always do well on time, but I'm looking at the clock and I'm actually doing well today. Um, so, you know, thank you. <laughs> I received that hand clap. Last question for you. Again, we've asked everyone this so far for the season. If you could have dinner with anyone in the equity space, past or present, who would that be? I would say, um, for me, it would be Maya Angelou. I think um, the journey that uh, she went through personally, um, her connection to Malcolm X and the civil rights work, but so eloquently being able to master um, words in a way that moves people and continues to move people. I'm blown away by how powerful uh, a sentiment and moving she can be with so few words. And I think, it, you know, for me, I've always, you know, held her in such high esteem. Uh, she's an inspiration as a writer myself. I just think, oh, how can somebody be so incredible with uh, with words and just um, um, just the grace and just the power of, you know, the way that she communicated and did the work that she did. And I think um, she has probably been somebody who's just really influenced just uh, the way that I want to approach leadership work, um, humanity, compassion, understanding um but also just courage in 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 communicating in the way that she did so my angelo for me fun fact or random fact depending on the who's listening my to date of all the like well-known internationally well-known famous celebrity people i don't celebrity feels odd for maya but just you know well-known folks um individuals who have passed 
Mine's the only one that when I learned, I was actually running on the track when I used to pretend that I wanted to like train for some type of like 5K, 10K. Never actually ran one. She's the only person that actually like stopped and I wept Mm. right on the, like I can vividly remember that day for many of the reasons that you just shared. I just didn't want to tell you that at the beginning, like I needed you to share. So I didn't steal your shine, but there is definitely synergy here in terms of like, some of the many people I'd want to sit with, like who one of those people I would I would love for them. So you'd be. join us for dinner, not, right? I would join you for dinner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> absolutely. I'd be early. I would not shame you. I would not be late. Yep. Um, you know, I'll I'll put out my best my best behavior. Use the correct fork. All of that goodness. <laughs> or if we just have food, we can use our hands. Amazing. Better. Um, <laughs> But Hassan, thank you so much for your energy, for your time, for your honesty, transparency. I've truly enjoyed chatting with you today. I've had an incredible time. Honestly, as I said, it feel, it was such an honor to be asked to come in and have a conversation with you. And it's lived up to its billing. And you are an incredible host and really engaging. And thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to continuing our conversation and doing the work that we do together. 